Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to greet all of you. I want to say good morning to all the folks that are joining us online. Stacy or Tracy Watson, rather, is your online host today. She's wonderful. So if you need anything, don't hesitate to ask. We're glad that you're joining us, wherever you might be. I want to real quickly uh, draw your attention to the insert in your bulletin today for the Solomon Foundation. Uh, we haven't talked about the Solomon Foundation in a while. For six years, the first six years of the Solomon Foundation's existence, I <clears throat> sat on the board of directors. My, my term came to an end, so I'm not currently serving, but I want to encourage you uh, to uh, check that out. I'm still a big fan and a big investor with the Solomon Foundation. If you'd like to learn more about that, I'd be glad to talk to you anytime. Uh, <clears throat> we've got our Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and it's uh, good to be back in the pulpit after a two-week break. It's been two weeks since we've studied uh, the Gospel of Matthew in this series we're involved in called Let's Talk About Jesus. We're working our way verse by verse by verse through this gospel. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Austria on a mission trip with some folks from the church, a tremendous experience. And then last week, of, of course, we celebrated Mother's Day. But I'm thankful to be back and to continue the study. And I, as we do that today, we come to a brief, but listen to me close, very powerful passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Before we read that, though, I want to remind you of something I told you several weeks ago. I told you that when I decided I was going to preach verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, I sat down, I, in, I outlined the entire book, all 28 chapters, you know, for a couple of different reasons, just to help me better prepare for the study. And then also I thought, since it's such a long study, it might be that once we finish one section of the gospel, we'll take a break for two or three weeks and talk about something else just to keep things moving and help you to keep, keep getting from, uh, to keep from getting too uh, bored, if you could ever get bored with studying about Jesus. But anyway, uh, and when I did that, uh, it was really interesting. The first four chapters of Matthew's gospel, I just called Jesus the Messiah because those chapters talk about his birth and talk about basically the preparation for his ministry. And then we got to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, where we are today, which just so happens to be the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached. And I called that section of Matthew's gospel, just say no to religion. Just say no to religion. And I want to talk to you about that word religion for a moment, because I know that means different things to different people. Uh, strictly speaking, by definition, the word religion means, and I'll put this up on the screen so you can see it, a specific set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon by a number of persons or sects. And with that definition, you could talk about a variety of different religions. You could talk about Christianity, you could talk about uh, Buddhism, you could talk about uh, uh, just about anything that you can think of. That definition fits a lot of different religions. But what I want you to understand is what I mean by religion in the context of this study. What I mean by religion in the context of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, when I say just say no to religion, is that Jesus came into a world filled with religious people who believed that having a right relationship with God was a matter of external actions the following of rules with no involvement of the heart. But what we see from Jesus over and over again, and this, friends, is especially true in the Gospel of Matthew, is an all-out assault on that belief. Jesus came into a world 
where religious people had turned their relationship with God into nothing more than the following of rules. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. Having said that, that's the world Jesus came into. Do you think that Christians are sometimes guilty of creating the same kind of world today? The answer is yes. And the answer is yes for a variety of different reasons, not the least of which is following rules oftentimes makes us feel really good about ourselves. But let me just suggest something to you today. If we were to reduce the world and life and everything about it into real simple terms and said that in this whole world, as you go through life, there are two sets of people. There are people who follow rules and people who don't follow rules. Which set would you be in? Where would you fall? I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand because I guarantee I know there are way more people who don't follow rules in this service today than there are who do. I asked that question last night. I said, how many of you are rule followers? And just a handful of hands went up, and some of them were even embarrassed to do it. And I said, which of you don't follow rules? And it was like, you know, with great pride. Some people raised both hands. And I tossed and turned all night at the spiritual condition of my congregation. (laughs) I'm a rule follower. I'm not afraid to say it. I'm a rule follower who has been married for 35 years to a rule breaker. (laughs) Both my children are rule followers, which is evidence that God does answer prayer. (laughs) But if I'm being honest this morning, I will have to tell you that I can and I do feel a certain level of moral superiority over people who don't follow rules. And if you're a rule follower like me, you know what I'm talking about. Now, they can be any kind of rule. They can be, you know, what we might think of as religious rules. They can be what we might think of as church rules. They can be rules for the proper way to drive and park your car in a grocery store parking lot. But here's the problem. That feeling of moral superiority that comes from following rules can sometimes make you think that rules are the only things that matter, just the action of following rules, that's the only thing that matters. And Jesus came into a religious world where your relationship with God was defined primarily by the following of rules. It was defined primarily by your external actions. And what we see in the Gospel of Matthew over and over again is that He countered that by talking about righteousness, by focusing on righteousness, which is first and foremost a matter of the heart. It's not external, it's internal. Now, for all my rule-following friends like me, that doesn't mean that rules don't matter. It just means that the following of rules needs to flow from right motives, and right motives come from right hearts. And what we're seeing here, especially as we're working our way through Matthew chapter 5, is Jesus talking about this in some very powerful ways, in some very specific ways. We saw it the last time we were together as Jesus talked about how we're supposed to respond when it comes to handling our emotions and handling our anger and, and handling people when they sin against us or they offend us. We talked about that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. This morning, we're going to see it in regard to a very sensitive issue. We're going to talk about it in regard to adultery. So... If you got your Bibles open there to Matthew 5, I'm going to invite you to stand with me like we always do in reverence and respect for God's Word as we read 
our passage. If you're a guest with us this morning, so glad you're here. We do this every week. We have such a high, we have such high respect and value for God's Word that when we read it in the Scriptures, we stand in reverence and respect. I'm going to read verses 27 through 30, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Again, I'll say it, this is a powerful passage of Scripture with some very real application for modern life. But before we talk about the Scripture, let's just take a moment and make sure that we understand this in context. We always need to read and study our Bible in context. Jesus is once again showing us a contrast between religion and righteousness. And here's what I told you about religion and righteousness two weeks ago when we first started this section of Matthew chapter 5. I'll put it up on the screen so you can see it. The primary difference between religion and righteousness is that religion or religious people rather often focus on actions, the following of rules, while righteous people focus on the attitudes of the heart, the motives behind what you do. Jesus brings a message of righteousness into a world focused on religion. Jesus brings a message of the importance of the heart into a world that was focused on actions alone, a religious world. And again, He shows us that in our text today with regard to adultery. And let me show you the contrast as we begin. We see in verse 27, Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now, everybody look up here at me. That's religion. That's religion, strictly speaking. That is the following of rules. That is the understanding and the obeying of a rule. But then he goes on in verse 28 to say, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that, friends, is righteousness. That's an understanding that the avoidance of the action of adultery is not all there is when it comes to sexual holiness and sexual fidelity. Now, having said that, I want you to listen to me close. I can't say this strongly enough. I can't say this clearly enough. Adultery is wrong. It is never the will of God for anyone ever. I don't want my talking about this contrast between religion and righteousness to in any way, shape, or form take away from that truth, to in any way, shape, or form diminish the severity of adultery. Adultery is always wrong. It goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. The Seventh Commandment recorded in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 simply says, you shall not commit adultery. In the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, the word adultery is the word na'af, and the fundamental meaning of the word is to break wedlock by having sex with another man's wife. Now, that's not saying that only men can commit adultery. You just need to understand, and I've told you this before, that the Bible was written in a patriarchal culture, or in other words, it was written in a male-dominated culture, and that's how things were often described or explained from a male perspective. The fundamental meaning is breaking of wedlock by having sex with another man's wife. That's the meaning in the Old Testament, and friends, it's the meaning in the New Testament as well. In the New Testament, when it talks about uh, 
the misuse of sex when unmarried people are involved in sexual relationships, it uses the word, in modern English Bibles, it uses the word sexual immorality. In older translations, it uses the word fornication. Both of those terms come from the Greek word porneia. That's a whole nother thing. The bottom line is this. God who created sex gives us clear instructions in the Scriptures about sexual conduct and simply stated, this is what it is, Sex is reserved exclusively for marriage between husbands and wives. I don't care what age you are, what season of life you're in, you need to hear, you need to hear me say that. This is the instruction of the Scripture. Sex is reserved exclusively for marriage between husbands and wives. The instructions are clear. There's no ambiguity. There are no loopholes. And there are no exceptions. Now, that might sound harsh to someone who doesn't necessarily have a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches or someone who doesn't live with a genuinely authentic biblical worldview. But I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Being harsh is the last thing on my mind this morning. The most important thing on my mind is being clear because I have this incredible responsibility before God when it comes to teaching you about these kinds of things. Sex is an incredibly powerful thing, regardless of how casual the modern world wants to make it appear, and it has the power to destroy lives, and it has the power to destroy families. And I've had a front row seat to seeing that happen more times than I'd like to remember over the last 37 years. But here's what our text is teaching us. Jesus wants us to know that his expectation of us is much higher than just being able to say no to the physical act of adultery. His expectation is that our hearts and our minds are pure and holy when it comes to sex. That's why he said in the second verse of our text, after he said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, he goes on to say, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That word lustfully in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word epithomeo, and it has the simple meaning of to long for or to desire something forbidden. And while I know that Jesus gives us this warning about lust for multiple different reasons, there are so many different reasons why he gives us this warning in the Scriptures. We only have time to talk about two this morning. First of all, because lust is not the kind of thing the Bible says should fill or consume the heart of a believer. Lust in the heart of a believer. We're talking about lust in the terms of sexual things, but any kind of lust in the heart of a believer is not in keeping with the Scriptures and what they teach us with regard to our hearts. For example, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Lust is not in keeping with guarding our hearts. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Lust in our hearts is not in keeping with setting our hearts on things above. When I was a child growing up in church, one of the very first verses I learned is Psalm 119 and verse 11. This is how I learned it. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You can see it on the screen the way it appears in the New International Version. 
having a heart filled with lust after anything flies in the face of all of these verses about the importance of guarding the heart. And listen, that's just three verses. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface on everything the Bible has to say about the importance of having a pure heart. The second reason why Jesus gives us this warning against lust is because lust is insatiable and always leads to a desire for more. Lust is insatiable and always leads to a desire for more. I wonder how many of you this morning are familiar with the Old Testament story of David and his adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. If you've grown up in church and just went to Sunday school, I'm sure you've heard it. I'm, if you've been in church any length of time, I'm sure you're at least vaguely familiar with the story. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Don't turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I reference that story because it's the classic example of how lust, how something that begins with just lust always ends up into something much, much more. I'm going to put 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 2 up on the screen, but I've got my Bible open to this passage. I'm going to read verse 1 flowing into verse 2. You listen as I read. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Listen to this last phrase, but David remained in Jerusalem. David didn't go. David was a, a warrior. He was a general. His, he was famous for his battle filled expertise, and yet on this particular occasion, he stayed at home. Then we see verse 2. Verse 2 goes on to say, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Stop right there for a moment. This is David we're talking about. This is the greatest king in the history of Israel, God's chosen people. This is the man who wrote the 23rd Psalm, the most loved Psalm in all the Bible. This is the man, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. We can go on and on and on with his qualifications. But what we see in that verse, I'm talking about verse 2, is the beginning of lust that led to a desire for more. Now, I don't have time to go through the entire encounter in detail. So I'm going to summarize it for you this morning, and I want you to write these things down in your notes. This is the first thing that happened. He looked at something he shouldn't have seen. That's what we saw in verse 2. He got up from bed. He walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And when it says that he, when I say he looked or that he saw in the text, listen, it didn't just mean he, he looked and he, he saw and he, he glanced away. He looked. He watched her. He looked at something he shouldn't have seen. The second thing that happened is that after he looked at something he shouldn't have seen, he asked a question he shouldn't have asked. If you were to continue to read from verse 2 into verse 3 in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says this, and David sent someone to find out about her. And so basically, after David stood there and he watched Bathsheba bathing, bathing and it captured his, his attention, it captured his mind, the next thing he did was he basically went to one of his servants and said, who is she? Find out who she is. And so he looked at something he shouldn't have seen, and then he asked a question he shouldn't have asked. Number three, he took something it wasn't his to have. Verse three continues to say, and David sent someone to find out about her. So after he asked about who she was, he sent someone to find out about her. And the man he sent came back, and this is the exact thing that the man said to David from the Scriptures. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? He sent a man to find out who she was. He came back, and in essence... 
He looked at David the king and he said, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And when he said the wife of Uriah the Hittite, he was in essence saying to David, she's off limits to you. She's married. She has a husband. So he looked at something he shouldn't have seen. Verse 2, he asked a question he shouldn't have asked. The first part of verse 3, he took something that wasn't his to have. The second part of verse 3, and number 4, he did something he shouldn't have done. Verse 4 says, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And it all began with a look that led to lust. And if you know the rest of the story, we don't have time to go into detail about the rest of the story, but if you know the rest of the story, then you know that the consequences that David paid in his life for that sexual encounter far outweighed the pleasure that it brought him on that evening. And this is a true story. This is the way lust works, friends. It's not just from the pages of, of the Bible from a historical standpoint. This is just the reality of, what, of the way lust is. I, I remember several years ago when I, I had a friend who was a pastor in another church in the Tulsa area when I lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I served a church in a suburb there. And I got up to preach one morning, just like I'm doing with you this morning, and I looked out in the audience, and there he was. And I thought to myself, what in the world is that guy doing here? I didn't know him well. I just knew him. After the service was over, he came to me at the door. I was at the door shaking hands, and he said, I'd love to have a chance to talk with you this week. I said, okay, we made arrangements, we met. And he told me the story of how he had been fired from his church because he had been arrested a week earlier for soliciting an undercover Tulsa police officer for sex, a woman he thought was a prostitute. And he told me a story about how when he was a teenager, he began to, to look at pornography and that, that, that the lust as a result of that just grew and grew and grew. And then he got married and, and, and it was okay for a while, but then it came back and he needed something more. And so he used to sneak over into his in-laws. If you can imagine how brazen this was, he used to sneak into his in-laws' homes who, uh, her home who had, and because they had cable television with pay-per-view channels and he would access those pay-per-view channels and watch X-rated movies during the day while they were at work. And when they'd get the bill, they'd say, what's going on? He'd say, yeah, your cable company's trying to rip you off. You need to get in touch with them. Just bold-faced lying. And then that wasn't enough. And so he would drive to Oklahoma City and solicit prostitutes. And then that wasn't enough. He began to do it in his own hometown until he was arrested. And he lost his church and he lost his family. And this is the reality of lust. It's insatiable. And it almost always leads to a desire for more. There's an old saying that I've heard for years and years and years, and it's so true. It goes like this. I'll put it up on the screen. Sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you're willing to pay. And that's true about any kind of sin, friends. Jesus knows, listen to me really close. Jesus knows that lust in your heart is not the exact same thing as the physical act of adultery, but he also knows that adultery is oftentimes the fruit of that lust. And Jesus wants us to be so committed to righteousness that we not only say no to the act of adultery, but we say yes to having pure hearts. And here's how we do it. You see three blanks on your insert this morning? Here's how we do it. Number one, look away. What a simple concept. Don't put yourself in a position to even be tempted. 
Now, I know that lust is something that can affect both men and women, but let's just be really courageously and brutally honest this morning, men. It's a huge problem for men. Lust is a huge problem for men. That's why several years ago, Stephen Arburn, who actually lives in the greater Indianapolis area, and Fred Stoker wrote a book called Every Man's Battle. It was about lust. It was about pornography and battling that sin. He wrote a book called Every Man's Battle because this is a huge problem for men. I would be lying if I said that I'd never experienced this battle in my own life. I would never mislead you about that. When I was about 12 years old, I was in Springfield, Missouri, visiting my grandparents, my father's parents, and my grandfather was gonna take me to play golf, and he sent me back into the house, into his bedroom to get some golf balls. He said, I keep them in my desk drawer, and I opened the wrong desk drawer, and it was filled with Playboy magazines. I was 12 years old. I'd never seen anything like that before. It did two things. First of all, honestly, it scared me to death. I mean, I was a kid. I was a church-raised kid, you know, in so many ways. I just scared me to death. The second thing it did was it intrigued me. I was a 12-year-old boy. Fortunately for me, the fear won, and I slammed the door, the drawer shut and got out of the bedroom with no golf balls as quickly as I could. But what I learned in that moment, what I realized even more over the years is that lust for men is a powerful thing. And pornography isn't hidden in drawers and it isn't hidden in closets any longer. It's as close as the keystroke of your computer and the swipe of your smartphone. A 2014 study by the Barna Group revealed that 64% of Christian men, 15% of Christian women admitted to viewing pornography at least once a month, at least once a month, and many of them even more. And I'm sure that there are people sitting in the service right now who viewed pornography probably last night before you went to bed to get up to come to church. Pornography has the power to destroy your life and your marriage, and your family. Pornography will take you farther than you want to go, it'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you're willing to pay. This is every man's battle. This might not be every man's problem, this might not be every man's addiction, but this is every honest man's battle, at least on some level. And Jesus, in a real economy of effort, says, look away. Look away. He says, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in, her heart, in his heart. Look away. Now, here's the truth. Some of you, you can't do that on your own because you've already tried a hundred times. If that describes you, then you need to be courageous enough to confess that sin to God. Then you need to be courageous enough to confess that to another man that you trust who can hold you accountable and help you to look away. The second thing that Jesus says that we do <clears throat> to avoid lust is we cut it out. 
Again, this is so simple, but it goes back to verses 29 and 30, which are the strangest verses, especially to somebody who's not familiar with the Bible. Back in Matthew chapter 5, that's where Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, I've told you before, listen, Jesus is not, not speaking literally here. This is hyperbole. Let's even call it super hyperbole. He's just basically saying, you've got to do, do I really need to explain this? He's just really saying, you've got to do whatever you've got to do to avoid falling into this temptation and this sin. You've got to take whatever steps you need to take. I'm going to put a verse up on the screen, Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. Paul writes this. I wish we had time to look at the whole passage because it's powerful. Just before we get to this passage or this particular verse, Paul says, put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Think about that. Put aside the deeds of darkness and certainly lust and what it brings falls into the category of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then in verse 14, he says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now note this, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That goes hand in hand with what Jesus says when he says, if you're right, I cause you to sin, then gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's saying, just do whatever it takes to separate yourself from that temptation. And the third thing is he says, guard your heart. He says, guard your heart. Remember, he said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if you don't remember anything else I say, I want you to listen to me really close right here. You can look away from temptation, which Jesus tells us to do. And you can cut out all of the circumstances and environments in your life that could tempt you to sin, but you can't completely eliminate temptation from your life just by doing those external things because first and foremost, temptation is a matter of the heart, and so you've got to take care of your heart. You've got to guard your heart. Everything begins with the heart. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he wrote two psalms to talk about the aftermath, two psalms that described, at least in part, the hell that he went through as a result of his sin. And in Psalm 51 and verse 10, this is one of the psalms, Psalm 51. In Psalm 51 and verse 10, he wrote these words as a prayer. Do you see them on the screen behind me? I want to hear you say them with me. Let's speak them together. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. You've got to guard your heart. Brian, you can come, and we'll bring this to a close. I want you to listen to me. It is not God's will for sin to have you in its grip if you're a Christian. It is not. It never has been. It never will be. It doesn't matter what the sin is. We're talking about something very specific this morning, but it doesn't matter what the sin is. It is not God's will for sin to have you in its grip. And it doesn't have to because you can be free. You can be free from the power of sin, but not apart from trusting in what Jesus did when he died for you on the cross and not apart from taking responsibility for your life and doing the things Jesus instructs us to do like looking away and eliminating from our lives the potential for sin. Jesus bought you freedom when he died for you on the cross and freedom is what needs to characterize your life. Now we're gonna close our service in a little bit of a different way than we have, than we normally do. And I just decided to do this spur of the moment last night, so I apologize. If you're a prayer and decision counselor, I'm not gonna need you this morning. In just a moment, we're gonna stand together and we're gonna sing. Brian's gonna lead us in a song. 
And I, I know that there's no way, there's no way that people are going to feel comfortable walking down an aisle in response to a song following a message like this because we would we'd be wondering, what's somebody thinking about me? What, what, are, what, what do they think I'm involved in or what I'm doing? So here's the challenge that I want to give to everybody. When we stand and sing, and I certainly know this is out of some people's comfort zone, and so you probably feel free to do it, and that's fine. I'm not, the last thing I'm trying to do is to make anybody feel guilty, but sometimes I really believe taking a step toward God is a positive thing. So if you're here this morning and the deepest desire of your heart, regardless of what you might be experiencing in your life, regardless, if the deepest desire of your heart is just to have a pure heart, just to seek a clean heart, I wonder if you might come and just let me pray over you. I'll be the very first person to step down or to step out because that's the desire of my heart. I'm not asking you to come as a confession of something going on in your life other than your desire to live a life that's pleasing to God. Last night, the whole place was full down here of people who just made that step. We didn't have a great, great response at 8.30, and that's okay, or 8.45, but I'm wondering if you'll come today and just let me pray over you. We won't make it long and drawn out. I know it's desire of every heart, but if you take that step today, then I want to pray for you this morning. You